Well, good morning. How is everyone doing? Everyone doing well? If you're new, my name is Jamie. I get to be one of the pastors here. And it is my honor and privilege to invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you are welcome to borrow one of ours. You'll find one, I think, in the, in the seat in front of you. It'll be black, and uh, you'll find Acts chapter 6 on page 914 of one of those Bibles. Acts chapter 6, and as you're turning there and finding our passage, I just want to bring you up to speed as to what we're doing this morning. This is the third and final week of our series that we're entitling Anatomy of a Church. Normally we walk through books of the Bible a little bit at a time. Um, but Pastor Brent and I decided that it would, we thought it would be good to take a look at sort of the structure of a church. Uh, we're a pretty young church, as you know. We just recently celebrated our third year together. And as we're continuing to grow, we thought it would be good to look at what it is to be a church and how a church operates together. There are a whole lot of ideas about what church is, why we gather together on a Sunday morning. Some would say that we gather together on Sunday mornings to receive, you know, little installments of God's grace as we receive the sacrament of communion. Some would say we get together to um, be encouraged and to hear a sort of weekly self-help seminar, like a a mini TED Talk every week to to, uh, encourage us along the way. Others get together on Sunday mornings to gather with friends and still some attend church as they would a lecture, you know, to hear a little bit about some new teaching and then go home. All of those reasons for attending church are good reasons, I think, in some measure. Coming to church is a, in some some regards, a, a grace from the Lord. Coming to church is a way to be encouraged. It is a way to meet your friends, and it is also a place to learn about God and His Word. But taken alone, any one of those reasons is not sufficient. And it it's very dangerous, I think. It's, it's dangerously easy, at least, to take an individualistic approach to church and to the faith. What I mean by that is we talk often of having a personal relationship with Jesus, and some have taken that personal relationship with Jesus to become a private relationship with Jesus. So if that's true, then it becomes difficult for us to draw connections between one another as to what, you know, what does her faith have to do with me and my faith? And what does my faith have to do with her? And in turn, we evaluate church as consumers. What's in it for me? Is the music to my liking? Does the pastor entertain me? Are there programs that suit me in this church? Is there someone to watch my children at church? And your pastor's concern is that if we take an individualistic consumer approach to church and to being a Christian, it would produce in us a faith that is anemic, wasteful, unfulfilling, devoid of mission and discipleship, and thus dishonoring to Christ. And so, we thought we'd do this mini-series. So I pray that you've learned a few things here and there as we've went along. I pray that you've been helped by it. I pray that you've been encouraged by it to at least resist the flow of consumer Christianity. And we thank the Lord to His credit that 
that's just not something we deal with a lot in our people. But we're young, and as we grow as a church, in, in, in terms of age, and if the Lord wills in terms of size, it could become easy for us to fall into unhealthy patterns of church life. So we kick the service off by looking at what it means to be a member of the church, an individual person in the church, and the responsibilities that we all have to help one another grow in our knowledge of Christ, and how a local church preserves the gospel witness in its community. Last week, we looked at how the Lord helps us to do that by giving us men to teach us, to train us, to equip us, to encourage us. So if you missed one of those two um, sessions, then I would recommend you go back and listen to them on the website. Today, we're going to look at another way in which the Lord enables His people to do the work of ministry. He gives us servants, those who have given themselves to meet the physical needs of the church and to protect her unity. The Bible calls these servants diakonos, which just means servant. In the English, transliteration of diakonos is deacon. One of the places deacons appear is in Acts chapter 6. So we'll read this passage together, verse 1 down to verse 7. I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. should be 45 minutes or so. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. This is from the ESV. Now these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray together. Lord and Father, would you help us this morning to understand the importance of what it means to be a church, to function as a healthy church, to keep our priorities right. Would you teach us specifically this morning the role of deacons? Would you help us to understand what they are and how they work and what they're for and what they're not for? And would you enable us to hear your word, to be encouraged by your word? Would you soften our hearts to receive your word? And may your word do its holy work in making us like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a little bit of background as to what's going on in Acts chapter 6. We're a little into the storyline of the Bible. 
God created his own people for his own glory. All people created for God's glory. And people rebelled against God and sought their own glory, thus earning God's wrath. But God sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a payment for their sin, absorbing God's wrath for their sin in himself. God rose Jesus from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death, and thereby offering forgiveness to all who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. And then he gives God's people to God's church, to a community of people who have knitted themselves together to see one another grow, to become like Jesus. And then Jesus gives a promise to come back to his church and to set up his kingdom here on earth forever. This is the message that we call the gospel. And the gospel is such life-changing news that the first Christians gave everything they had to see that gospel proclaimed to as many people as possible. Now, when I say that the early Christians gave everything that they had to see the gospel proclaimed, I mean they gave everything they had, literally everything they had. We learn in Acts chapter 4 that the earliest Christians went all in for Jesus. They sold everything that they had, they pulled all of their resources together, and they shared all things in common. And by the way, we're not talking about 30 members in a church, half of whom have the same last name, with a church up in the hills. This is a mega church. These are thousands of people pooling their resources and sharing all things in common. So I, I love when Christians often come to me and, and will say, well, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just looking for like a first century church. And I'll, I often reply w- with something similar, saying, okay, if, if what you mean by that is that you, you're looking to be able to sell your home and your cars and cash out your 401k and all of your savings and then donate all those proceeds to a church, I'm pretty sure I can find you one that would accept you. But that's not usually what they mean by, I'm looking for a first century church. Usually those kinds of folks are okay with the 90% discount they get on their offering. Because usually they're taking about 98% discount on their offering. But the first Christians gave everything. They went all in for Jesus. They shared meals together. They prayed together often. They gathered often to hear the apostles' teaching. If anyone had need in the first century church, they met the need. It was a great church. Everything was going really, really well, right until it didn't. As these kinds of things go, someone is getting overlooked. It could have been an accident, but it seems as if it were on purpose. Greek-speaking widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Verse 2. The twelve, the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The apostles decided they couldn't do the ministry of mercy and the ministry of the word together. One of those two ministries would suffer. 
And so they asked the congregation to put forward seven men equipped to do the duty of meeting the needs of the people. This seems to be, in Acts chapter 6, the beginning of the diaconate, the beginning of the ministry of deacons. And from this passage, we can learn at least four things. Four things. And this, these four things will guide our time together. If you have a, a worship guide on the backside, you can follow along with these four things. And yes, in case you're wondering, all of that was introduction. Now on to my first point. Number one, deacons are servants. From this passage, we learn deacons are servants. Number two, deacons are servants who assist the physical needs of the church. And number three, deacons are servants who, by meeting the physical needs of the church, preserve her unity. And number four, deacons are servants who, by meeting the physical needs of the church and preserving her unity, support the ministry of the word. Number one, deacons are servants. Deacons are servants. As I mentioned earlier, the word deacon is just an English transliteration of diakonos, which is most often in the Bible translated as servant. In fact, that word is used often in the New Testament. Matthew twenty twenty six, Jesus uses that word when he says, whoever would be great among you must be your deacon, your servant. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Jesus Speaking of himself says, even as the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon, to give his life as a ransom for many. Romans 15, 8, for I tell you that Christ became a deacon, a servant, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 7, speaking of himself says, of this gospel I was made a deacon according to the gift of God's grace. Romans 16.4, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Centuria. 1 Peter 4.10, Michael read it earlier today. As each has received a gift, use it to deacon one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Here's the point. Deacon means servant. In that way, Jesus was a deacon. Pastors are deacons. All of God's people are deacons, servants, in the sense that we use our gifts and talents provided by God to serve each other, to deacon each other in some capacity. And when we come to Acts chapter 6, we find the need arising for some to be recognized as a special kind of servant, the kind of servant who would meet certain and specific needs in the church. All of us are deacons in some sense, but these deacons are appointed to serve specific and certain needs in the church, which means deacons are not another legislative body in the church. It's not like the elders are some kind of Congress and the deacons are the House of Representatives. They're not a committee sharing authority with the elders of the church. Deacons are servants appointed to serve certain and specific needs in the church. Now, some of us grew up in churches where 
you, the structure was you had a soul pastor and like a board of deacons. And I just want you to know that's a fairly new understanding of the office of deacon. In the centuries after the New Testament era, the church continued to recognize the office of elder and deacon. And as near as we can tell, deacons were used to take up offerings. They kept track of church finances. They assisted the church ministers. Deacons took care of the poor. And that's the way it was for centuries. But then as the church institutionalized in the Middle Ages, the medieval church began to use the deacon as a sort of stepping stool on the way to becoming a priest. But then during the 16th century, during the Reformation, the diaconate was restored. Deacons were appointed to meet the physical needs of the church again, especially the poor in the church. This is how many churches utilize deacons today. Presbyterian churches use deacons in this way. Many Baptist churches use deacons in this way. Many congregational churches use deacons in this way. But sometime, for some reason, in the 19th and 20th centuries, some churches began to assign deacons more spiritual responsibilities. They became like a board of directors. So they function like, a little bit like uh, maybe a school board would function, or the uh, board of directors for a, a, a company, a, C, a corporation, or something like that. So if you're used to thinking of deacon as someone who sits on a board and helps make decisions about the church, I just want you to understand that that is a fairly new way to look at that office. And in my humble opinion, that's not what is taught in the Bible. And I think if we use deacons in that way, the church would suffer. A simple study in the New Testament reveals that deacons were servants, playing a vital role in helping church members carry out their God-given responsibility to help one another grow in the knowledge of God by meeting their physical needs and maintaining unity. So number two, deacons assist our physical needs. Deacons assist our physical needs. Notice in Acts chapter 6, the issue is an inequitable distribution of food in the church. Now remember, the early church, they, all, they celebrated all things in common And I just assume all things probably means food as well. At the very least, it included meals for those who couldn't provide meals for themselves and for their own family. For example, widows. You have to understand that in first century Palestine under Roman rule, life as a widow would have been very hard. It's a time when the well-being of a woman was largely determined by her connection to a patriarch. So if she was a young girl, her father would provide for her. But as she became of age and became married, then it was her husband's job to provide for her. When her husband died, leaving her alone or living her alone with children, she was in a perilous situation. There was no job and family services for her to turn to. There was no societal help like we have today. Job prospects were low for a woman without a husband. Most women in the first century Roman world would have been illiterate. There was no public welfare system to the poor. There was no food assistance. She was in a dire situation. And when Jesus came along, he 
in a lot of ways, revolutionized societal understanding of women. The Bible had always maintained a high regard for women, for women. And when Jesus came along, he just maintained it. And he taught women. As a rabbi in his day, teaching women was just not done. But we find in the pages of Scripture that women were some of Jesus' most loyal disciples. It was, it was women who were at the feet of the cross. It was women who went to the grave in the morning. Jesus' own mother was probably a widow. We don't learn much of Joseph past Jesus' birth. And on the cross before Jesus died, if you recall, he gave care of his own mother to the Apostle John. As the eldest son, he gave care of his mother to John. And traditionally, we believe that John took care of Mary as he pastored the church in Ephesus till her dying day. Early Christians after the resurrection, maintained the Lord's view of women. Women were with the men at the prayer meeting at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit used women to prophesy in the book of Acts. Paul called women co-laborers in ministry, Romans 16. And the early church took it on themselves to take care of widows and orphans. In fact, it's really interesting if you read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, you find that some churches even kept a roster of women who couldn't provide for themselves, like widows. They kept an enrollment, making sure that there was enough funds set aside to take care of widows. There was a whole system in place for helping widows find aid they would first have them look to their family. If their family couldn't provide it, the whole church itself provided for widows. And just as important, the church would encourage her in ministry to others in the church. How wonderful it is to know that we have a God who doesn't only care about our spiritual needs, but He also cares about our physical needs. God has made us body and spirit, physical and spiritual, and God cares for both. Can you imagine the impact of a church's gospel witness to her community? If some members are starving, while other members are living life of self-indulgence and luxury, how might that affect the way outsiders view God? Well, the New Testament knows nothing of some church members hoarding wealth while letting others starve. When you look at the pages of the New Testament, you find that Christians in the New Testament were very concerned about the needs of others, even the needs of others in other churches. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul praises the churches of Macedonia, who though they were extremely poor themselves, gave beyond their means. And he says, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Christians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 in Macedonia were begging Paul, take up an offering. Please, we want to give to relief the saints. New Testament church took care of its own people, and deacons spearheaded that care. 
What seemed to be happening in Acts chapter 6 is there was some discrepancy about the distribution of food. Hellenistic widows, meaning Greek-speaking widows, were being left out of the daily distribution. This is a multiple thousand-member church. The task of ensuring that everyone had their needs met was probably a very large task. And the apostles decided that they couldn't do both physical care and spiritual care, so they asked the church to put forward servants to lead that ministry. Seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So the second thing we learn is that deacons serve the physical needs of the church. Number three, deacons preserve unity. Notice in verse, verse one, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. One ethnic segment of the church complained about another ethnic segment of the church. And that complaint risked the church's unity. Through some kind of botched administration, maybe some prejudice, unity was jeopardizing, unity was being jeopardized by tensions, by complaints. And so the apostles appointed deacons to address the issue and to address the needs of the people. Ensuring their material, corporeal needs so that no one in the church was being neglected, so that no one in the church being neglected would cause disunity, and that unity in the church would be preserved. Which is why it makes sense in a few moments when we look at the qualifications for deacons. Paul's qualifications for deacons are largely related to issues of character, not ability. A deacon needs to be able to absorb some of the shock that naturally happens when sinners gather together to align themselves for one particular purpose. And there is some question about how things are to be done and sinners get together and discuss it. There's going to be disunity. Deacons come along with good character, God character, wise character to help keep everyone unified. So a deacon's character must be more than just his ability to administrate, facilitate, do finances. Their character must be put forward of having a good reputation. Verse 3, full of God's spirit and wise. Deacons are servants of the church who meet the physical needs of the church and by so doing preserve her unity. Number four, deacons support the ministry of the word. In verse 2, the apostles are concerned that having to administrate the daily distribution along with the ministry of the Word, one of them would be encumbered. And so they say, it's not right that we should give up the preaching of the Word to serve tables. Now, I don't think that they mean to say that deaconing is unimportant work. We've just established Jesus Himself said that He was a deacon. It's just that the priority of their ministry was teaching and preaching the Scriptures. And once they had appointed the seven servants, in verse 4, they devoted themselves to the Word of God in prayer. So a deacon is a servant of the church who ensures her physical needs, thus maintaining unity, and thereby supporting the elders' ministry of the Word. Deacons serve her physical needs so that elders can serve her physical needs, her spiritual needs. Deacons are not people that pastors appoint 
to do the stuff that pastors don't want to do. Nor are they a balance of power to keep one branch of the church government from being too powerful. Deacons are vital servants of God's church to remind God's people that we are one people. And that God cares about our physical and spiritual needs. And so what happens when church, a church gathering, is ministering to one another's needs? She grows in maturity, which is the case of this church, which also grew in number in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The people's needs were met. Pastoral ministry was supported. The word went forth. And people were saved. I hope you can see how vital it is, the ministry of the deacon. It takes the right person. And so we'll end our time together considering the qualifications of the right person, the qualifications of a deacon. So point your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, that's further back in your Bible. Past the prison epistles. If you find the Thessalonian letters, keep going. First Timothy chapter 3. That'll be page 992 on the church Bible. Because of the importance of this ministry, Paul gives a list of qualifications for a deacon, beginning at, at verse 8. We'll work through these a little bit at a time, but we'll move through them fairly quickly. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, let's read down to verse 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, a deacon must be dignified. The term means honorable, means respectable, esteemed. In Acts chapter 6, good reputation. A deacon cannot be double-tongued. So we wouldn't have someone serving in that capacity who would say one thing to one person and then something else to another person. A deacon cannot be addicted to much wine, verse 8. It's not that drinking wine is sinful, it's just that drinking too much wine indicates a lack of self-control, a lack of self-discipline. A deacon cannot be great, greedy for dishonest gain. If it's true that a deacon is going to be in some capacity overseeing the finances of the church, at least a portion of the finances of the church, then that person cannot be greedy for dishonest gain, cannot be a lover of money. A deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience in verse 9. 
So it matters what a deacon believes. Ought to hold firm to the true gospel without wavering. A deacon's behavior must be consistent with their beliefs as they hold it with a clear conscience. So a deacon's life must not um, say one thing, I believe this, I believe this is what a Christian is, and then live a life that is contrary to that belief. Verse 10, a deacon is to be blameless. Paul says a deacon should be tested first. Now, Paul doesn't say, and nowhere in the New Testament do we find really any indication of how this testing is to happen. But it would seem wise for a congregation to consider a deacon's background, to consider a deacon's reputation, to consider their theological positions. A congregation might examine uh, a deacon's, a potential deacon's history in serving in the church. I think that's left up to prudence. Now, there is some debate about verse 11. If you have an ESV Bible, there is a little notation there, whether or not this is referring to the deacon's wife or referring to a deaconess. Because the Greek literally reads women likewise. The possessive word there that you see in the Bible, that's not in the original manuscript which has led many churches throughout history to appoint women as deacons. Earlier we quoted from Romans 16.1, it's possible that Phoebe was a deaconess. The language is this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, a deacon of the church in Centuria. So it's possible, and and historically churches have understood this to to include women to this work. Either way, whether verse 11 is saying wife of a deacon or a deaconess, she must be dignified. She must not be a slanderer. She must not go around spreading gossip. As somebody who God has appointed uh, to protect the unity of the church, she must steward information well. Can you imagine how the ministry of mercy would, be, would suffer if information was not being stewarded well. Finally, she must be sober-minded and faithful in all things. Verse 12, a deacon must be faithful in marriage. Literally, the phrase there is one woman, man. So, for the man, there must be no other woman in his life. There must be no other woman that he relates to in an intimate way, physically or emotionally. And lastly, a deacon manages their children and household well. And I would think that that has something to do with last week when we saw the qualifications of an elder also having that need. Because if if a deacon can't manage their household well, how are they going to manage the church well? I love the promise in verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. And also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in the end, we we see that a deacon is four things. A servant. A servant who meets the physical needs of the church. A servant who meets the physical needs of the church, thus maintaining her unity. 
and a servant who meets the physical needs of the church, maintaining her unity and thereby supporting the ministry of the word. God has called every believer, every Christian in this room, to join themselves to a local church and through that church affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ together and affirm those who belong to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of this to the glory of God and the advance of the gospel. And to that end, God appoints elders to lead them, deacons to serve them, such that their spiritual need is overseen by pastors and their physical needs overseen by deacons. This is the anatomy of a church. It's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it's messy. And God has appointed the means to make His wisdom known through the church. If you're not a part of this church, may I encourage you to become a part of this church? May I encourage you to spend yourself helping others in this church follow Jesus, to grow in the knowledge of Christ? May I encourage you to spend yourself on the one thing Jesus said He came to build. Please stand for the prayer of confession. If you knew, at the end of our services, we take a moment and we take elements from God's Word and we confess where we have not lived up to the standards that God has set forth in His Word. And we ask the Lord to be gracious and to forgive us. We do that together, so if you would, please join your hearts with me as we pray together the prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, we come to you through Jesus, not based on any reason that we have to be here, but simply on the basis of what Jesus has done for us to give us access to your throne room, to give us your ear. We are your people whom you have chosen to hold on to the gospel and to hold out the gospel to others. And we thank you that you have not left us alone in this matter. And you have been so kind to us to provide us pastors to lead us spiritually and deacons to lead us physically. It's wonderfully reassuring to know that you are not a God who cares only for our spirit, but you also care for us physically. Thank you for giving us to your church those people you've called to yourself who are so generous and selfless that they would love you enough and care for us enough that they would spend themselves helping us in our spiritual walk with Christ. We ask that you would forgive us for having neglected to serve one another. You told us through your servant Peter that we are to use our gifts to serve one another. How often we have become focused on ourselves and fail to serve those sitting next to us. Lord, will you forgive us of this sin? Enable us to see one another, to have the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ, to see the needs of each other. Help us to care for one another's well-being. Enable us to serve with the gifts that you've supplied. When a need arises in this church body, will you raise up those you've called to meet those needs? 
Please keep us from neglecting this. Please keep us from allowing disunity to divide us and to destroy our witness in Piqua. We thank you for teaching us today about deacons. Thank you for caring for us so well. In Jesus' name.